You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. There is compelling evidence that type 2 diabetes and obstructive sleep apnea are closely linked. What do we need to know about identifying and treating this disorder? Joining us to discuss type 2 diabetes and obstructive sleep apnea is sleep specialist and pulmonologist who is a member of the Scripps Clinic Division of Chest and Critical Care Medicine in La Jolla, California, Dr. Shazia Jamil. Dr. Jamil. Welcome to ReachMD. I'm glad to be here. Let's start off with the basics. What is the prevalence of sleep apnea in the general population? Well, based on Wisconsin Sleep Cohort Study by Terry Young, which was actually published in New England Journal of Medicine in 1993, the estimated prevalence based on hypopnea apnea index of five or more was 9% in women and 24% in men. By the way, the study was done between the ages of 30 to 60 years, However, the sleep apnea syndrome, which is a combination of this abnormal apnea-hypopnea score of five or more, along with excessive daytime sleepiness, was estimated to be 2% in women and 4% in men. I would also like to point out that because of current status in our country, or I would say in Western world, about childhood obesity and adolescent problems, it is much more increasing in prevalence, as is shown in... uh, Journal Sleep 2007 article by Dr. Johnson that up to 6% of adolescent patients can be diagnosed with sleep apnea. As an endocrinologist, I know that it's extremely common, not only in, in the type 2 population, but the general population. I think that, that data is pretty, pretty scary. Well, what are the risk factors for developing sleep apnea? We have to risk stratify somehow. Think about it in this way. Any factor that decreases the size of the pharynx, such as large tongue, large tonsils, Retrognathia, fat deposition, craniofacial abnormalities all predispose patients to sleep apnea. In addition, the most common factors being obesity, not just being overweight, male sex, advancing age. More and more studies are showing that postmenopausal women are at higher risk than premenopausal women and possibly due to a protective effect of estrogen. But we still need more studies to show it better. Well, what about the, uh, let's bring in the type 2 diabetics. We know that they're at high risk. What's what's the data to suggest that? There is definitely much more data now than even five years ago. Current data from epidemiological and clinical studies point to an association between sleep apnea, glucose intolerance, insulin resistance, and pancreatic beta cell function. More interestingly, this is all independent of obesity, age, sex, and race. Potential mediators are thought to be either adrenergic function alteration, the direct effects of hypoxemia on glucose regulation, or release of pro-inflammatory cytokines, such as IL-6 and TNF, that affect metabolism. I would like to give a reference here. The American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Medicine in 2005 showed that type 2 diabetes was much more prevalent, about 14.7% in patients with moderate obstructive sleep apnea, compared to only 2.8% in patients with normal apnea-hypopnea index. So that's quite compelling. I would also like to point out that my colleagues at Scripps Clinic published in Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine very recently, 
as of December of 2008, and showed that CPAP therapy in patients diagnosed with diabetes mellitus, as well as obstructive sleep apnea, was shown to improve glycemic control, at least during sleep. Well, that's interesting because it's not just a a risk factor when you have type 2 diabetes, but when it actually causes insulin resistance and uh, problems with the glucose control. So what I heard was you don't have to be heavy to develop obstructive sleep apnea? No. There are um, studies that show that even thin patients can have obstructive sleep apneas. They may be familial aggregates. There are patients who are completely at ideal body weight. Even in my own practice, I'm actually treating people who are completely at ideal body weight. But they had remarkable symptoms, and when we tested them based on polysomnogram, they were found to have moderate or severe sleep apnea. So is sleep apnea also associated with some of the other metabolic factors of type 2 diabetes, like high blood pressure or abnormal cholesterol levels? Yes, and uh, that's why the whole uh, terminology of metabolic syndrome, you have central obesity in patients, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, some of the cardiovascular comorbidities, especially atrial fibrillation, and uh, even incidence of myocardial infarction and angina may be higher in patients with sleep apnea. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Steve Edelman, and I'm speaking with Dr. Shazia Jamil. We're discussing the link between type 2 diabetes and obstructive sleep apnea. Well, how does a sleep specialist decide which patient should undergo a full screening procedure. And what is that full screening procedure? So first of all, uh, whether it's a sleep specialist, a pulmonologist, or a primary care physician, anybody who sees a patient who's complaining of uh, loud snoring, or even moderate, I mean, it doesn't even have to be very loud, any moderate snoring, there are other things we need to look at. For example, the sleep partner's questionnaire, the account of witness apnea, gasping, the patient's multiple nocturnal awakenings, or waking up with morning headaches. All these should point towards sleep-disordered breathing. But apart from that, history of excessive daytime sleepiness, fatigue during morning, these are all some of the most common symptoms. On physical examination, particularly what I look at is the patient's BMI, whether they be overweight or obese, a large neck size. I always uh, do a detailed oropharyngeal examination because I would like to look at the specific pharyngeal abnormalities and a melampotic grading system which tells me how crowded the posterior pharynx is and some of the other physical abnormalities such as a overbite or retrognathia. Well, let and me ask you, if you're a primary care doctor, is there anything you could do in the office exam-wise? We don't have all the equipment that you have in your office. Simple tongue depressor and a light can tell you a lot about the posterior pharynx. A melampotic grade tells us between grade one to four, how open is the patient's pharynx when they're awake and when they're sitting up. And these are some of the things that even a primary care physician can do. And then refer it to either sleep specialist or a sleep laboratory to do a full nocturnal polysomnogram that would definitely confirm whether this patient has sleep apnea or not. What is a polysomnogram? Polysomnogram, as the name shows, is a multi-channel recording. And basically, it is a non-invasive, first of all, non-invasive monitoring system in which a technician places several different electrodes, almost two dozens or so electrodes and sensors on patient's body. The patient basically comes at nighttime. He needs to sleep in our sleep laboratory. With 20 electrodes attached to their head? Yes, and I know what you're going to say, whether the patient is able to sleep or not. Most of the patients are able to sleep. 
And just to give you some example, these electrodes do monitor EEG activity, electrooculogram, which is eye movements, EKG, chin activity, snoring, body position, nasal airflow, respiratory effort, abdominal effort, leg movements, and pulse oximetry. Well, can you, is there a poor man's test that they can do at home? Yes. Um, so there are several different types of home monitoring systems, which are actually becoming more popular. And American Academy of Sleep Medicine has started recognizing them as some of the standards of diagnosis of sleep apnea. Uh, but a true poor man's uh, sleep study at home would be a pulse oximetry. The patient takes a pulse oximeter home, puts a small electrode on the finger, and goes to sleep. And it tells us in the morning when we download the data how many times a patient has desaturated and what is the specific pattern of desaturation. Yeah, that, that sounds a lot easier. And uh, if it's equivocal, they can go to a full test. That's very true. If the screening pulse oximetry is absolutely normal and the patient has very few symptoms, the clinician may decide whether this patient would really benefit from a full nocturnal polysomnogram. That's important to know because, you know, it's so common in type 2 diabetes. Well, let's talk about therapy. What, what's the standard of care for treating obstructive sleep apnea? The standard of care at this time is the continuous positive airway pressure device, also commonly known as CPAP. Just to give you an idea, it acts as a pneumatic splint to maintain upper airway patency during sleep, and therefore it prevents obstruction. Now, if patients are unable to use CPAP or for any reason intolerant or have claustrophobia, the second line of treatment can be a mandibular repositioning device, commonly called MRD. And basically what it does is it moves the jaw, the lower jaw, the mandible, few millimeters forward in order and create a larger posterior pharyngeal space. Well, a lot of my patients are on it. They tell me they feel fantastic after they start it. And uh, for me, I've never actually tried it myself or seen a head device. How obstructive are these you know, CPAP machines? Do they look like Roger Ramjet or is it, or they're getting smaller? They're definitely getting smaller. The, the machine itself is becoming less noisier now. When I was in training, it really used to be a big six or eight feet box, very noisy. Um, the mask used to look like aeronautical mask, and almost nobody wanted to use it unless until, you know, the physician really asked them to do so. But now the masks are also becoming smaller and smaller and most non-intrusive. Well, let's talk about the role of surgery. Um, what about jaw reconstructive surgery? What can they do if the CPAP doesn't work? Yes, yeah, so um, I basically would go through the guidelines of American Academy of Sleep Medicine and, and patients who absolutely cannot use CPAP, cannot use mandibular repositioning device, or for some reason have failed these first two lines of therapy, surgery definitely should be offered to them. So there are three most commonly used surgical procedures. The one is called uvulopalatopharyngeoplasty, or UPPP, and this is only for patients who have retropalatal region obstruction. The second type of surgical intervention can be genioglossus advancement and hyoid myotomy, which corrects a type 3 obstruction. And lastly, one of the most extensive surgeries called the maxillomandibular advancement osteotomy, and it corrects obstruction at all levels. Again, I can emphasize enough that highly skilled ENT or maxillofacial surgeons are the ones to do these procedures. So apart from the specific therapies that I described today, I would like to say that weight loss is an integral part of treatment of sleep apnea, and all patients should be counseled about it, and we should 
provide them with support as much as we can as physicians. In addition, I emphasize postural therapy, that is to keep the head end elevated because gravity plays a role in decreasing the caliber of the upper airways, along with avoidance of alcohol at least within four hours of bedtime and avoidance of sedative, because all these factors predispose patients to obstructive sleep apnea. Well, I would like to thank our guest, sleep specialist and pulmonologist who is a member of the Scripps Clinic Division of Chest and Critical Care Medicine in La Jolla, California, Dr. Shazia Jamil. Dr. Jamil, thank you so much for spending time with us and sharing your expertise with us on Diabetes Discourse. Thank you very much, Dr. Edelman, for inviting me to this program. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. Daddy, what are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Uh, Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes. And like many of my type 2 diabetes patients. That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess in a way it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com slash DIA.